Welcome to the 326th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with medical anthropologist Todd Myers about COVID, vulnerability, and the ways we process the aftermath of a disaster. A reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 23rd, 2021, there are 4,433,615 deaths from COVID-19. That's a global counting according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Other than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers, which strike me now as inaccurate and not a good way to visualize the suffering, I'm going to continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about. I've also asked others to contribute their ideas for COVID measures that they'd like to know more about. Please feel free to send me those suggestions by email or on Twitter at US of Disaster. This was a suggestion that I received from Verena Winnewarter. She asks, how many people have been prescribed antidepressants since the first lockdown? Another COVID metric that we should probably know alongside the death totals. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, I'm going to miss my friend. Southwest Airlines flight attendant 36 dies from COVID-19. This is written by Don Gilbertson and appeared in USA Today, August 12th, 2021. A Southwest Airlines flight attendant based in Las Vegas died Tuesday, August 10th from COVID-19, according to his family and co-workers. Maurice Reggie Shepherson, a native New Yorker whose brightly colored pants earned him the nickname Skittles during training in 2014, tested positive for the coronavirus in early July and had been fighting it in a hospital for a month, according to Marsha Hildreth, a Southwest Airlines flight attendant who called him her best friend. He was on a ventilator and died early Tuesday, August 10th, his mother, Dawn Shepherson, told USA Today. A nurse told her it was from COVID-19. Shepherson, 36, was fully vaccinated, his mother and Hildreth said. He loved to fly and took every precaution wearing a mask, constantly washing his hands, sanitizing surfaces, and wiping everything down in hotel rooms, Hildreth said. It hurt me so bad because it was just so quick, Don Shepherson said. Didn't have time to really even acknowledge what is going on. This is mind-blowing. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. Hildreth said she's in disbelief, too. I'm going to miss my friend, she said. Southwest spokesman Brandy King confirmed a Las Vegas-based employee did die Tuesday, August 10th, but declined to provide details. Shepherson's mother said the airline reached out to her, and Hildreth said Southwest contacted her after Shepherson's death and pulled her away from a work trip so she could fly home to Las Vegas. We are heartbroken over the loss of our Southwest employee, King said in a statement. Out of respect for the family, we do not have additional information to share. COVID-19 vaccines are highly effective, but they're not 100% effective in preventing infection. A small percentage of people who are fully vaccinated will still get COVID-19 if they're exposed to the virus that causes it, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And that seems to be the case of what happened with Shepherson, who was vaccinated. However, vaccinated people who have breakthrough infections are much less likely to get severely sick or die in the overwhelming number of cases. Southwest and other airlines have not released statistics on the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths among flight crews. The Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, which represents flight attendants at United, Frontier Spirit, and Hawaiian Airlines, among others, 
estimated that 4,000 flight attendants across all airlines in the USA have contracted the virus and 20 have died. Co-workers called Shepherson a high flyer. He picked up more work trips than most, partly to make money, partly to travel whenever he could. Kiki Lee was in Shepherson's flight attendant training class in 2014 in Dallas, where Southwest is based. After five weeks of training, she and other newly minted flight attendants just wanted to go home. Shepherson started using his employee flight perks immediately. One of the first trips, Lee recalls, was to China. He was hitting the skies right away using his benefits, Lee said. He loved working and he loved the perks. Shepherson's Facebook page shows his travel adventures, including several work trips to Hawaii. In June, he took his mother along for the ride. His mother said that was one of his last work trips for Southwest before he tested positive. He loved travel, and anybody who knew him knew he loved his mother, Lee said. Travis Pittman, another Las Vegas-based flight attendant for Southwest, met Shepherson when he relocated to Nevada from Tampa in 2016. That New York exterior can come off hard and all that, he said, but he was just like a teddy bear, so sweet on the inside and very, very loving, just very fun to be around. Don Shepherson said Reggie, whom she raised on her own after his father died when he was 14 months old, made her proud every time she walked through a Southwest terminal at an airport. People that I don't even know, once they find out I'm Reggie's mom, said, ma'am, you did a beautiful job. This is a fine young man, she said. As a mother, I feel so blessed and proud because that's all I wanted in life was to raise my son right. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Todd Myers. Todd Myers is a medical anthropologist whose work moves between ethnography, visual culture, and the history of medicine. He joined McGill University's Department of Social Studies of Medicine as the Marjorie Bronfman Chair in Social Studies of Medicine last year. Before that, he was at New York University's Shanghai campus, where he directed the Center for Society, Health, and Medicine. He's the author and editor of several books, most recently, A Cultural History of Medicine in the Modern Age, which came out from Bloomsbury earlier this year and The Human Body in the Age of Catastrophe, which he wrote with the historian Stephanos Gorelinos, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. His new ethnography, which deals with issues of loss and aftermath titled All That Was Not Her, will be published by Duke University Press this, uh, this year. Maybe it's already out or it'll be coming out next year. We'll get that clarification in one second. Todd Myers, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I, I'm, I've really been looking forward to this discussion. The new book is out, and I and I no, missed that. No, not, not until okay. February. Ah. These things take forever. I know they do. You've probably been done with it for three years, and it's still <laughs> <laughs> moving through. Um, well, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, it's great to have you on, and I, and I want to start the way I usually do, just finding out about where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there today. Well, I'm, I'm calling from very humid Montreal where the pandemic is uncertain. Um, you know, it's better for some more than others. Um, this, this week, the public schools reopen and people are preparing to go back to university. So, I mean, I feel like this is a, <laughs> a phrase we've been repeating over and over. We'll see, we'll see what happens. So, I mean, it still feels like summer here, um, but you know, things might change quickly. So um, I, I just wanna say just kind of from the top, um, just, I'm so impressed with this project that you're doing, the COVID calls. Um, you know, I, I dip in and out of these and of course they show up on my Twitter feed and, you know, I can find myself like watching for half an hour here and there and it's fantastic. But just like, your introduction today, I, I think is a good example of really like, these aren't just an inventory of conversations about the pandemic. I mean, there's really this evolution about the way in which the pandemic can be talked about, the things that are pressing, like you know, pressing to us, and kind of you know just tracking and having a record of that evolution. I think is just a, a tremendous intervention. So um, I just I just want to say how impressed I am. I'm happy to talk with you, but I'm more impressed hearing other people talk, and I'm certainly impressed with just the 
you know, the, the kind of diversity of experiences and voices that come through in the, in the discussions, even people who might otherwise you might just categorize as academics, um, but they themselves have very different experiences of this time. And it's, it's nice to have a record of that and to see that record evolve. I mean, things I've said or thought about the pandemic, um, you know, I, I think back to maybe six months ago and I wince. You know, I mean, I just, but of course, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of things from a different point of view or different perspective. So it's just nice to have some tracking of that. So I just, I wanted to say that before we got to uh, of ourselves with our discussion, because I think, I think it's important to, to acknowledge. Uh, it's very kind of you to, to, to say that. And, and I really do appreciate that. And I, and I really like that you said that you've been listening to bits and pieces here and there, because I think that's, that's part of what I hope the project enables. Yeah. Um, because that's how we're all absorbing that. And we're going to talk about this later. Is you can't absorb any disaster in its totality. It's like saying, well, go out there and absorb life. Yeah. So I have wanted to not do something that had a meta, some meta narrative, some, some narrator voice. And so this is, this is what we've been doing. I, I, I'm glad you noted that at the top, you know, the Reggie Shepherson obituary, because that's a story. So here's a guy who apparently was vaccinated and then got a breakthrough case and died. Now, this is very new. So maybe there's more to the story. We'll find out. But that's what's in the obituary. And that's what the family wanted yeah. to put out there. And, you know, it shows just the incredible complexity of this kind of science communication. You want to tell people to get vaccinated? Absolutely. That's what public health officials are telling us what most political officials even are telling us. Um, but there's still risk and this, and that's what this one little story comes to us and, and bears that. And I thought that was, to me, that was an important one. And to say it and not then worry that, well, by telling that story somehow, everybody's going to then say, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated. We, yeah. Yeah. The gray no, areas of communication around vaccination are grayer than I had even thought even a year ago. I mean, this is, this is the question of, I mean, you know, we talk, I mean, it's very easy to talk about vulnerability, people who are in situations of, of social and economic vulnerability and how those things become amplified during a period of crisis or what have you. But and there's also a, this vulnerability of being misread. There's a vulnerability of information, you know, not being read correctly or that it's interpreted in various ways. And that, I mean, that kind of vulnerability, I think is very much a part of what we're seeing now that this that there is a risk in there is a risk in storytelling there's a risk in right. sharing information that everything is coded and complicated and how it is received is so uncertain and i think that has to factor into not to say that things have to be so managed they're so managed that they are you know that they you know that they become just a bullet point um you know the sort of hyper managerial sort of you know like if we can just reduce it down to the one, the essence of the thing, it, surely it won't be misread or politicized or what have you. But I, I, I'm not suggesting that at all, but I'm suggesting that like there is, there is a vulnerability in social relationships. There's vulnerability in, in science. Um, you know, there's vulnerability when you feel that you're suggesting something that is otherwise objective and founded gets misconstrued. So, I mean, so yeah, so I I I, I hear you. I, I'm glad you you raised that that word. It's it's a term of art in disaster risk reduction. It's been around a long time to be used in that way to talk about so-called vulnerable populations in disaster. Mm -hmm. And when the term first started being used a generation ago, it was an important innovation because it actually um, took seriously the idea that in disaster not all people are going to fare the same. Which yeah. now you look back, you're like. People didn't know that. And of course, people knew that, but the structure of society didn't allow that acknowledgement. Yeah. So, so that was an important turning point. Um, but it's seen now there's other words that are used, terms like resilience, for example. Um, I still I come back to vulnerability a lot because it does a lot of work at yeah. a time like this to help us sort of sort the world a bit. But as you said, it doesn't seem up to this moment to me. It has failed to capture, for example, people who uh, may not ordinarily because of their class position, you wouldn't think of them as vulnerable to COVID. And yet, um, because of the work they do, 
um, they've been yeah. uh, at the front lines every single day facing this infection, and they've been having to quarantine at home, some of them for going on two years now. So vulnerability has been produced in this pandemic in new ways. I, I wonder if any of that sticks for you or where you're working with, how you're working with that word. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that, I mean, I guess, I guess one, so, so, you know, in, in my household, we lost the month of February uh, in 2021 because we had someone in my household had a positive test for COVID. And so we have kids. And so basically the whole household is, you know, in home isolation and we were for, you know, 24 days or so. And, you know, and there were these, so vulnerability there looked very different for us. I mean, of course there was the worry. I mean, our, we were all sick I mean, we felt miserable, but we weren't, you know, we weren't, no one was hospitalized, so there, but there was worry. Um, there certainly was boredom, which is not, which I, I would not align with vulnerability, but there was profound boredom. Um, but when I think back about that and talk about that month, there's also a kind of embarrassment. Um, and it's the embarrassment really is like, um, you know, I, I got paid. I, you know, I, I was able to teach my courses, which were all online. Um, you know, my daughter was able to do her schoolwork. Um, you know, we gained weight because we ordered takeout, you know, delivery, you know, you know very often. Um, we kept ourselves occupied with board games and coloring books, which we ordered from the company that, you know, funds Jeff Bezos's space travel. Um, so we, you know, it's like we, we, there was an entire network of people who absorb risk who occupy that category of vulnerable, whether it's the DoorDash or Uber Eats guy, or the people who are in the Amazon sorting facility or the UPS guy who's delivering things, or, you know, or the people at the, you know, the COVID testing sites for us to get our letters so we can all go back to school and, mm -hmm. and work. I mean, you know, you're caught in this network of vulnerability. Like there are all these vulnerabilities that are around that make certain kinds of life possible. And to me, that's embarrassing. It's not personally in a kind of feeble, liberal, I'm embarrassed by this privileged sort of modality, but like embarrassed in the sense that there, that there are these functional divisions, you know, that they are, they, that they, that they, they, a society can function with vulnerabilities and that people will absorb them in different ways. And we, you know, before we, in our correspondence, before we talked, we talked a little bit about nursing fields where there's a great deal, there's a great deal of vulnerability and there's not a lot of compensation um, and there's burnout and there's, you know, and the narrative of heroism and, you know, pots and pans being clattered is great, but um, it also distracts from the genuine vulnerability of being placed in a, being in a profession that is poorly compensated. And frankly, you know, like many, many clinician friends, I, I find the stories that they tell me are stories of abuse. I mean, their time is being abused. Their, their, you know, their, it's a, it is a risk of, of exposure to COVID as a kind of abuse and being exposed in that way, you know, basic resources are being deprived, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, you know, so I think this formulation's idea of vulnerability as static, also the idea that we don't all in some way participate in those networks of vulnerability and uneven absorption. I think that's really, to me, analytically, that's very problematic. Personally, it's also problematic, um, but analytically it's very problematic. So thinking through vulnerabilities in ways that are um, perhaps uh, indirect, that are, as you say, and you know, that maybe are not in, found in their traditional homes, um, that actually take, you know, start to dwell in other places might be a, a way for us to break some of that um, hmm. analytic laziness about the, the term. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, and I also think these terms get so, I mean, they really do become so domesticated. You know, vulnerability or exposure right. or risk become only certain things and we domesticate them and we can move through them without actually thinking about just really how deeply they, the you know, their tendrils sort of grow into daily life. So I know that's kind of a long meandering and highly personal way to think about well, that category. Well, I, no, thank you. Yeah. No, it's, thank you for sharing the, um, 
what you went through in February, you know, I usually ask people, we got off and running very fast. And I usually ask people if they would share a memory of a moment. It's an impossible question, but, uh, but I've been asking everybody this question for months now. If there's something they would share about the pandemic yeah. time that really resonates with them, it sounds like you've got a whole month to answer that. Well, and, and just even the way in which I think of formulating, like to lose February, we didn't lose February. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think I reviewed a couple manuscripts, you know, I certainly watched a lot of uh, streaming television. Um, as I mentioned, you know, put on a couple kilos from very delicious Montreal takeout. I mean, the idea of loss here is, very, I mean, talk about, um, you know, a lack of self-awareness, you know, by me framing it as like to lose February. I mean, but I think that that's the, and I'm not trying to like, you know, suggest that somehow I'm, you know, that, that in my awareness of my lack of self-awareness, no, there's a lesson to be learned. <laughs> no, but what I, I am trying to say is that, in fact, actually, those things begin to coexist. So we can acknowledge and recognize real grief and real loss and loss that is protracted. The story that you read at the top from the Southwest Airlines um, employee, I mean, that grief and loss is just a debris field um, that will, you know, that people will be picking through and thinking about for in weeks, if not months, if not years. And to acknowledge that kind of loss against this, yes, superficial loss of time or mobility. It's these, you know, when we try to, when we try to tease apart the scales, we begin to see that actually all of things that all of these ha things are happening at once. And in right. fact, actually, even in situations in which you would otherwise think that people are having very sort of, you know, that things are so homogenized, that things are so similar given, you know, where you live in a particular city and who your employer is and what the configuration of your household looks like, that somehow experiences are even and they're wholly uneven. They're wholly uneven. And this is the kind of diversity and experience that I was referencing when I, you know, when you talking about kind of the archive of these conversations with people is that you have such variability and real loss and, you know, and to find our play, place within that is also a kind of vulnerability. How do I experience, how do I feel loss here? And then simultaneously, how, how does that same analytic work when I look about, look at loss over here, you know, and to try to reconcile that without, you know, without slipping into the kind of cognitive dissidence that we see with, you know, I mean, at one end of the spectrum, a kind of science denialism and all of these other things. But at the other end of the, the other end of the spectrum, a kind of a kind of a sense that you're doing everything right, so nothing can go wrong. <laughs> right. And if something goes wrong, it's because of the actions of other people, not because of your, I mean, a kind of weird, you know, hermetic way of understanding your place in the world. Mm -hmm. These two extremes are quite dangerous, you know, and it's that, that idea that somehow everything is outside of your experience. To me, that is a very dangerous position. I like the mid, the messy middle of live <laughs> yeah. vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's great fun to exist in that mess that I feel like many of us are in that mess. So I agree completely. And I, I'm glad you sort of, the way you put it, the sort of problem of the dealing with the multiple scales at once. I think we've had a real, I don't even, I don't know how to begin to research it, and, and you probably thought about it, but that you've got mortality, and then you've got my Amazon package is late. Yeah. Now, on any given day in the pandemic, I mean, the mortality, okay, I mean, got that. I, I've kind of thought that was a, a universal before this pandemic. It shows that I hadn't lived through a disaster of this scale before. And, and how quickly people actually started denying that mortality and saying, well, that's not happening. Or are you being lied to about that? But still, let's leave that there for a second. The, the Amazon package didn't arrive on time. Well, if you're confined to your house for months at a time, um, that can begin um, to become really important to yeah. you. And what if your medicine's in there? Yeah. Or, and, and so people um, who don't usually identify as disabled start to discover a world that People who've been talking to us about disability rights for a generation have said, no, actually, when you're confined at home, you start to rely on other things. And when those systems don't work, you know that. So, so there's 
two scales of vulnerability. And then, as you said, the sort of the the lived experience for most middle class people who've kept their job through this time. Um, there's just been a lot of loss of things like travel or graduations, weddings, ups and downs of a career, things that are actually hugely impactful in the life of a person, the life of a family or a community. But we don't know, I, I use the we here as if I can use it, but let me use it anyway, that we don't quite know how to talk about those three things. So I feel like we're not doing any of them adequately, like we're not capturing and I want to know more about how we do that. And, yeah. and I've reached for, you know, is it wartime? Should I go back and really become a scholar of, of the Civil War? I thought I was, the American Civil War, World War I, to find how it is that people talked about a, a child's illness when they've got an uncle who died. Yeah. Or, or how do they talk about a small setback when they know that something horrible is happening in the town mm -hmm. over? We don't stop feeling the one just because the other is happening. But the media, the mass media is a blunt instrument for that. It's not the place to look. They're going to report the things that they can report uh, in terms of deaths. And that's mostly what we've heard. We've heard some of the other things. It's not even a well-formed question. It's just an area that's that's been on my mind that's provoked by your discussion of vulnerability. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, I think this question about sort of the indirect costs of the the pandemic is is precisely like how thinking about I mean, as you were talking, all I could think was, you know, of in the United States, the discussions about eliminating Saturday delivery for the post office. I mean, that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with COVID, except for the fact that in rural communities, the post, you know, getting medicines by mail is often the only way in which you're going to get medicines um, for people who are not able to get them other in other ways. Like these kinds of indirect um the indirect effects of the pandemic and the pressures it places on, you know, the sort of social and political and economic milieu can't be underestimated. And as you were talking as well, like where do we begin some of these discussions about the impact? I mean, we talked three or four times now about the idea of home. I mean, home is also a place, can also be a place of danger and abuse. Um, you know, there's nothing neutral about domestic spaces. And yet during the pandemic, the home has become this place that, you know, that, you know, we just assume every, we, there is a kind of tacit assumption that everyone's having the same experience at home. And um, I think that those sites, you know, the home versus the clinic, for instance, become very important for asking these questions over time, like what's happening here? Um, you know, the, the, again, the discussion at the top of the, of the conversation about, you know, prescriptions of antidepressants. I mean, this is a, this is, this is something that's, yes, of course you could say this is a direct result, but it's also, it's, it, you're measuring it indirectly. I have a colleague who's in um, at the University of Johannesburg, who's a philosopher of public health, and he and his colleagues have been, you know, they, they did a fantastic job tracking the indirect costs of the lockdown in South Africa. And the, a lot of the indirect costs were, I mean, the number of uh, tuberculosis testing and treatment way down, right. you know, HIV testing plummets. You know, they were looking at all of these direct and indirect costs of the lockdown, what it actually produced. And then of course there's this, so those are measurable things and you could make an argument that those are connected. And then for me that there's this other space, and I guess you could call it almost a kind of intimate space where these indirect effects actually, they begin to, you know, social relationships, familial relationships begin to erode or take on different characters. And I want to know what that character is. And I want to know what happens when um, kids who find food and safety at school are no longer able to go to school. Um, you know, it's just not just a site of education. It's also a site of, you know, three meals and maybe bringing food home for a family um, in the late afternoon. I mean, it's, you know, there's just so much to unravel so I, I, I mean, I think the starting point is to say that these indirect, um, mm. to begin to, to begin to puzzle through the indirect consequences, not just of lockdown. I mean, there's a lot that's been said about lockdown, and you know, and you know, and I've heard lots of discussions here, and there's been lots of dis and it's it's in the ether. Um, but I mean, there are things beyond lockdown that are you know still sort of tightly bound, and we haven't begun to sort of unthread them. Um, 
what else was I going to say? I had another, I had another brilliant thought that has just completely escaped me. Well, um, it'll, it'll come back to you at, at Oh, but um, oh, the, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I'll just, I'll throw this here, but these are the things but also, I mean, not that I have the, I have the answer to this, but you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to, um, you know, like, um, you know, RFPs that come out, like requests for funding proposals mm-hmm. and looking at the way in which they measure that they're, they're talking about impact and thinking about the impact of research and the impact of um, the kind of outputs, um, the knowledge mobilization, all of these various ways in which you can, de- you know, describe the, the results of your research. And it's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm not going to say it's troubling. I mean, I mean, some of it's, it's a bit naive, but I mean, only it's it's really hard to move in those calls for proposals and in kind of applied research that looks at COVID. It's very hard for funders to move outside of something that can be, you know, measurably connected to the epidemic. And I think that to me, that's pro- that becomes very problematic because as some of my colleagues and, and people who are so smart who publish a gazillion things, you know, they'll say things like, you know, I don't work on COVID. And I'm like, oh, but, you know, we, this is the, I mean, we're moving through this ether. This is the fog that we have to cut through. Like we're all I kind of think we're all working on COVID. We're definitely working in the context of COVID. So then how does, how does something like a social science and humanities call for proposals, you know, that's happening now, not in some way carve a path through this, this collective, you know, catastrophe. So, so anyways, I'm just, just trying to think about kind of like ways into this questions mm-hmm. of vulnerability in indirect connections to the epidemic, I think is quite valuable. And it's, I mean, maybe it sounds hokey, but, you know, but I think that that's, there's a lot there and there's a lot that is hidden and that we might um, feel the, the, um, the pinch uh, in two or three years from now, like for instance, the nursing crisis, like, you know, when, when nurses all start right. putting on mass or, you know, no one wants to go to nursing school or physicians choose different fields, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are long-term indirect effects. Indirect I, I, I want to, since I have the benefit of, of having a great anthropologist with me here, I wanted to actually start to ask some, um, some of the, Kind of harder methodological problems around that, and it kind of ties back to what we were talking about with vulnerability. I had a nurse on um, a few weeks ago, Cassie Alexander, and it was one of the most profound discussions I've had in COVID calls. And um, she shared what it was like to work in the hospital through the worst of it. She's also a writer, um, so she has an enormous imaginative dimension. So she's great at communicating what she lived through. And then she also shared um, that she's not working right now. Um, because of mental health distress. And I thought, well, here's a story. This is one person. I can work with this. She described, she didn't use the term vulnerability um, because she's a nurse and she's a badass and she just talked about her life, (laughs) you know? Um, But but I thought, here's a story that carries a lot. We can, like a researcher, a more skilled researcher than me could work with Cassie and really amp this up to make a difference. And you'd have everything you want in there. You could talk about her lived experience. You could talk about the victims that she was kind of the intermediary for, any of the things that spin out of that. Um, But where it became harder as I thought about that discussion is how do we, um, how do we look away from that? Or how do we somehow then start talking about structure? Yeah. And, and I, and I don't know if this is a problem that can be solved, but at least has to be addressed that we're, we're struggling throughout this pandemic. We're dealing with huge quantities and then we're dealing with individual stories, but somehow the structures that produce vulnerability are, I feel like they're still slipping through our fingers. I wonder how you come at that. Listen, I mean, I, I think that those, those structures don't exist. They don't exist in ways that aren't lived. And, you know, so one, I think one of the problems that I've always faced as an anthropologist who values basically following around and listening to a, a small, small number of people for a long time and, you know, something that is about as far as you can get from hypothesis driven research as you can go and looking at the really the kind of ex, the ways in which life itself is experimental and 
adaptive and confusing and often horrible, but often joyous and trying to muddle through and document and finding a, a thread to carry through all of those things that connect all of those things, I think is profoundly, I think it's very valuable, methodologically quite difficult. Um, but I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's eschewing the larger questions of, of not maybe not scale, but the kind of, the kinds of, you know, as other medical anthropologists have described as the kind of structural violence that surrounds everyday life. And so, I mean, there, but my concern has always been, how does the individual over time absorb all of these things and navigate all of these things? And that to me is a, is a tough one because it's not just a question of how do you do it? It's a question of when do you do it and where? And this is what I was sort of hinting at before is I think there is this, if, if all of our work as anthropologists is folk, all the work of medical anthropologists is focused on, say, for instance, you know, the clinic and the clinic becomes the site in which, you know, you contact individuals and you gain access. You know, because it already assumes that people are, you know, engaged in uh, some kind of um, therapeutic relationship, no matter how fraught, whether it's an emergency room or, you know, a day clinic or what have you. Um, finding access and places to begin outside of those clinical environments, the home, for instance, I think is very difficult. And, but those are the places in which the world is also felt. I mean, this is, this has been my, this has been my shtick for many years in my work, which is, you know, what is it to move between these, these two, these two worlds, which themselves absorb into one another, the clinical world and the social world and trying to kind of, follow individuals between these two worlds, I think is valuable because it says something about both of those worlds and how they, they comment on each other um, in people's lives. And those are structural, to me, those are structural questions as much as questions of intimacy and um, daily life and emotions and um, the intricacies of, of, you know, social relationships. I mean, there's something, in fact, actually, it's much, to me, it's much more elastic, the idea of the intimate and the structural. I find it to be much more elastic, at least in the way in which it's felt by people. And, and, and as I sit on their couch, asking them obnoxious questions about life or just observing life or not, or not being asked back or being asked back. And so it's, mm. you know, all of those things are part of the ebb and flow of the ethnographer's work over time. Right, right. I, I do need to just remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls, and today I'm talking with medical anthropologist Todd Myers, and I want to follow up just where we were. Todd, I want to ask you um, about your book, uh, your 2013 book, The Clinic mm. and Elsewhere, Addiction, Adolescence, and the Afterlife of, Afterlife of Therapy, because I think, well, I want to know how you see it now, um, and it seems what you were just describing, sort of your method of ethnography there in talking about the clinic and, and the home and what happens in those spaces and between those spaces. And I, I'm asking also because I think I'm, I'm thinking of work by scholars like sociologist Laurie Peake or Alice Fothergill, who also have done sort of longitudinal studies of youth through disaster. And I feel I said this to you the, before we started, but I feel like we're going to need an army of researchers to get up on how you do this work and just being invited in, as you said, to sit on the couch and talk and then invited back a second time, um, that's not a given. So yeah. maybe tell us a little bit about that that work and how you're looking at it today. Well, I mean, that that book, 2013, feels like, I mean, that was what, eight years ago? Is that eight years? My, if I can do math in the mind very quickly, like eight years, it feels like a life, really a lifetime ago. And also that research, you know, it was, I followed a small group of adolescents who were in residential treatment for opioid dependency in Baltimore. And 
you know, the research happened between like 2005, 2006 to like 2008, 2009. And um, I mean, it was a very different moment of the current opioid crisis in the, the overdose crisis. And I mean, I mean, I have to mention like Nancy Campbell's work, which I've been, I just returned to Nancy Campbell, just a historian of addiction who just published last year, this amazing book called OD, which is on naloxone and the politics surrounding um, of overdose. And it's just fantastic. But um, I mean, this was a different moment. I mean, people couldn't pronounce buprenorphine in when I was writing that book. And now, you know, thinking about Suboxone and Subutex to treat opioid dependence is, you know, kind of part of the, the every day, but that book was very different in a sense. I mean, that those those institutions were so poor to me. They were very porous. I mean, following kids as they moved back through into the home, into other people's homes, back into treatment, following it over time. And the real impetus of that project was to, you know, to understand uh, a clinical. It started with a clinical trial for for buprenorphine and that these adolescents were, were enrolled in. And my question was very simple. It was like, well, well, wait a second. If a clinical trial is looking at the efficacy of a drug during this 18 month period, what happens at 36 months? You know, what are, what are the, what values of effectiveness using the language of the clinical trial are applied to this drug and to, you know, to this pharmacotherapy over time. So basically like, you know, the lives of these adolescents outlast the clinical trial and outlast their time in treatment. And so what does that look like? What is this aftermath of treatment? And what trajectories do they take? And part of that project, and I think this is relevant to us now, is that, you know, that ideas of success and failure of treatment were not just different between, I mean, the, the expected picture would be Clinicians, including nurse practitioners, and adolescent medicine specialists, and the people that they encountered in the clinic had one version of success, and that somehow they had some much more socially informed version of success. In fact, actually, success and failure really um, took root in the idea of a pharmacotherapy. That somehow this pill was going to uh, was going to cure you of addiction, and that was something that was shared or it came out in different forms. So, I mean, we're in a moment in which the success and failure of, I don't know, say vaccination campaigns, right. you know, it might be something we want to think about when we start to, start to, you know, you know, take up that language of success and failure. You know, breakthrough, breakthrough cases aren't necessarily failures, but they are failures. They're individual failures, but it's not a failure of the individual. This is also the... The, the difficult, this is why those two extremes, why that kind of, that kind of, you know, thinking between these two in these, in this polarized way actually is not very effective. And so, I mean, in that way, I'm, I, I've returned, my thinking has returned to that book. Um, I also think about how, I mean, we just mentioned it was just eight years ago, but how naive that book is thinking about, you know, the influence of something like Purdue Pharma, which does not factor at all in that, that analysis. I mean, we're in a very, um, the, and I'm going to forget the author's name, but the Empire of Pain book that just came out recently, is just, it is a fantastic read and one that I actually had to put, I started and put down immediately because, um, mm. you know, it's, quite, it's a frustrating read at the same time. But um, anyways, but long story short, I mean, I do think that there are, some of the terminology from that study about uh, futures, about what kind of futures do we expect after this individual crisis, this individual crisis of, I mean, and the crisis for a lot of those teenagers was uh, being stuck in residential treatment, not um, abusing opioids and I mean, poly, mm. a lot of polysubstance abuse. But anyways, I'll leave it there. But that's, that's how I've been rethinking that book. So then let's just follow that train a little bit. I know you've got um, projects underway and projects recently recently out, but um, you mentioned in our in our correspondence before our discussion today um, a project called Deplorables. Oh. <laughs> uh, maybe we can yeah. you can tell us a little bit about a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I I was having a hard time knowing where to place my anger and frustration about you know anti-science, anti-vaccination. And I was invited by a group of colleagues in France 
to submit an essay to a collection that was being put together. And so I wrote an essay entitled Deplorable and mm. based on Hillary Clinton's now famous basket of deplorable statement that she made, right. which I still, every time I say it, I, you know, I can't believe I hear myself saying <laughs> deplorables. But it began, the essay began in that, I was trying to work, so I was trying to work through some problems that I think you and I are both trying to work through. And I'll, I will get mm -hmm. to why I think that there might mm -hmm. be some questions. But, um, you know, the essay begins, I, I, my last semester in Shanghai, before coming back to the States, um, I taught a seminar uh, entitled uh, History of Disease Control and Pestilence, History of Disease Control. And so this was the fall of 2019. And mm. so, you know, it was a little ahead of its time. Um, yeah. The main text that we read was a beautiful book by, that I had read in graduate school by Julia Calvi, um, Histories of a Plague Year, which is on uh, the Florentine Plague um, mm -hmm. between six, 1630 and 1633, which, you know, by all accounts was not that bad. I mean, many people died, but not, I mean, it was mass mortality. Um, there was a fairly effective like public health infrastructure. I mean, people disposed of bodies, there was quarantine, there was a very elaborate system of, of protections that were put into place, sanitary protections. Hmm. Um, but what Julia Calvi's book shows is through these court documents um, that people were horrible and people hmm. would leveled accusations at one another um, about, you know, stealing clothes, that they were this this person is, you know, is sick, but they won't say they're sick. But of course, these are two competing bakers who, you know, right. one doesn't like the other. And these are right. basically like all of these old hatreds, all of this kind of this, this social bile comes through in these, these court documents. And it's fascinating because you get to read this story of basically like, what do social relationships look like on a micro level during plague? And I mean, the question that it raised for me and the question that we talked about in my seminar was, you know, there was life after this period of plague in Florence, you know? And so, you know, how, if the, if we have this document that shows us, shows us in a very detailed and lively way, the ways in which the social fabric became torn, you know, how did that get mended in the years after the plague. I mean, clear people have to live in the same city, presumably, those who survive, and many did. So what does life look like after this rupture? And so this was a question that, that, that I raise in this essay. And if, if it had a hard and fast conclusion, which that gives you a roadmap on how to deal with, you know, people who have ideas that we, we individually and we collectively might find deplorable, um, I mean, I would, I would cash, I'd cash in right now because I think everyone is, everyone's asking that question. I, mean, I started reading, I don't know if you started reading it, but I started reading um, Les McIntyre's book, the How to Speak hmm. to, uh, How to Learn, How to Speak with Science Deniers. No, it's, I don't have that yet. It just came out from MIT and um, I just started reading it. So I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not giving a review of it either way, but I mean, part of the conclusion in the book, and it ends with COVID, um, is like, you know, as long as you're, if you listen with care and you're respectful, like this is a starting point. Okay. But for me, like reading the book in the back of my mind, the entire time I have this picture from, you know, the news where they'll interview someone who just came off a ventilator and the first words out of their mouth are like, you know, fake news, you know? So it's like, where, where, what is the ground to begin the conversation about you know, through care and respect with a person. But there's, but there are other, I think there are other resources. Um, Sarah Shulman, who, you know, just wrote this amazing um, history of ACT UP during the, the, the early moments of ACT mm -hmm. UP, um, this book called Let the Record Show, which just came out, which is like a brick of a, of a social history of, of, of ACT UP, fantastic. She wrote a book several years ago called Conflict is Not Abuse, which is all about this idea of like tolerating difference and think what happens when you encounter individuals who have like what seem to be, you know, intractable self-concepts or, you know, what, like, what is the nature of conflict? And it's a fantastic resource. And again, I, I wish it had like the answer, 
on how to then, you know, talk to family members or people you see on the streets. But I feel like so many people are trying to work through this. Anand Pandian, who's an um, anthropologist um, in Baltimore, just wrote a piece in The Guardian like two days ago that was something like, um, you know, what I learned, I'm, I'm, don't quote me on the title, but it's, it's something like what I learned by being friends with an anti-masker. And he mm -hmm. has this, you know, long correspondence with someone who in Michigan, he's in Baltimore, he's Michigan, with this guy in Michigan who is an anti-masker and they correspond. And I mean, the end of the really lovely essay is like an invitation to, to not dismiss as difficult mm -hmm. as that is. And my colleague, uh, Jonathan Kimmelman, who's a, a bioethicist, just had a, an amazing Twitter thread where he's describing an encounter he has where it's like with somebody who is vaccine hesitant. And, and mm -hmm. these aren't his words, but the moral of the story is like, there is some reason in unreason. Like we have to think before we come up with these hard and fast positions. And that I, I, I also took away like, the position, a kind of position of purity and, you know, is a, is a very difficult one mm. again from our earlier part of the conversation to mm -hmm. maintain. But at the same time, then now the anthropologist in me is speaking where do, and the individual, like, where do we place our anger and frustration? Right. Like to, to, to think outside of that register of a, of a, you know, of, of rupture of a torn social fabric is not to deny that the social fabric has, is being torn, um, it, but it's something else. And I, I don't know exactly how to get a handle on that. I don't know, I don't know how to like, you know, begin to pull out needle and thread and a thimble and start to mend that social fabric. I mean, so I think maybe it starts at home, you know? I think it's mm -hmm. difficult to talk to family members who have very different views on what's happening around us collectively, um, who have very different ideas about what connection means. The fact that we, you know, the surprise that somehow we occupy the same world as people who disagree with us or see the world differently, or the, or the surprise that their actions have um, direct consequences on us collectively, um, that the public health is in fact actually it's something about collectivity right. um, coming to terms to that is not easy. So I bring all of this up because this is the theme of the essay, this uh, deplorable essay that I wrote for a French audience, but it was a little bit of trying to think like, this isn't just the caricature. And it was also written for a French audience, but trying to think through the caricature that develops about the American anti-science, anti-vaxxer, a caricature that is flattened, has no depth of variation, which those of us who occupy the world, which is all of us, know that those, in fact, those positions are not so, um, not, that they're not so uh, homogenous and that there is great variation in the way in which people see the world, even through these, uh, at times, dangerous tropes. And, um, you know, the whole idea of like divine retribution, you know, oh, someone's, you know, in the hospital, right. they, they were unvaccinated and now they're, on a ventilator. I mean, I gave up on divine retribution. I mean, after four years plus of Trump, there's no such okay. thing. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, they're waiting for that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that need to be reexamined. Yeah. But at the same, but at the same time, I think it does say something about how this contest, like we'll never win with these people is a, is a speech act that already implies a contest by which mm -hmm. there is a winner and a loser. And to me, it's like, I don't know if that worked. I don't know if that worked in Florence in 1634. I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I, now I'm just. No, there's, no, no, it, not at all. It's, it's, it, there's so much in what you're just, what you're describing. I mean, at, at one level, um, you know, I've read a lot of people sort of try to put this moment in a kind of a moment of American political development. And they say, you know, this is just the ne next iteration of how democracy copes with social media yeah and yeah. a bifurcated media ecosystem and but at the end of it if we still have functioning institutions um where people can yell at each other um and then um we still have a continuity of government um then it's more or less done what it was came into existence to to do i've just made a lot of political scientists angry because i think the whole field <laughs> just, just once i'm sorry i'm sorry uh, yeah but it's way more complicated than that but i mean just to you know 
for our purposes at this at this moment. And I, I'm fine with that. And and then of course the important work that people are doing about conspiracy and disinformation and try to poison that that system. And that's part of this as well. I guess the part of what you're describing that I'm really struggling with, and it's actually personal in my own in my own family, is um, what happens when there's anger and rupture and and you want to move past it yeah and and maybe you will move past it but then you have the memory of it and and maybe even this term aftermath is sort of useful here in, in a almost a uh, social psychological way and and it's so it goes beyond just like so again, here we're talking about scales of like individuals and then like broader discussions yeah. about community or society. But it's one thing to know that a person can act in a way that seems harmful to you in a moment. Yeah. And we have mechanisms of getting past that. Um, but it's another realization is like that person or that group of people is capable of that again. Yeah. And that's the part that I've been trying to, again, sort of get my mind around. And, and I guess, you know, here I, I think about genocide studies and, you know, people who've actually looked at like, you know, how does truth and reconciliation work? Yeah. Um, what's happened in the United States is doesn't. It's not genocide, but it's certainly large scale violence. Um, with state sanction. For a big chunk of it. So how do you move? How do we then begin to even talk about moving past that? What mechanisms will we need in 2024? And I don't think the election is the mechanism. And so now I've made political scientists angry twice in two minutes. But I don't think by 2025, the outcome of an election in the 2024 cycle will put the what's been revealed by COVID to bed. But I don't know what else we can invent. or what in the storehouse of history we can pull out yeah. to be useful to us. I want to trust anti-vax family again. I want to trust people I've never met who are anti-vax, even ones who really protest, who get really angry about it. I want to work with them again. I need to be able to, but I don't know how we're going to do that. Yeah, I don't think that that, I mean, that's, I think a very impoverished notion of of like social repair is that, we move past things. I mean, I think this right. is part of our, I think, shared attention to the question of after, aftermath, which is that these things are not moved past. In fact, actually, I mean, these are these are things that are protracted and people live with those. I mean, I'm thinking here of Pamela Reynolds' work in South Africa with young men who were who who were not part of the ANC, but were still too young to be freedom fighters and yet still took on this mantle of, of the freedom fighter and how they thought of themselves before and after and who lived in their communities and how do you, you know, how do you, how do you live in the same neighborhood with someone who was a police informant and who, you know, you and your, the people that you care about were, you know, in situations of torture and, and betrayal and her work, you know, tangles with this and doesn't untangle it. She's tangling with those questions of betrayal and, and how long they last. And that I think this is also where the questions that we began with around ethnography and scale become very important, which is you see how these things become entangled. I mean, if we want to talk about like the political structure and we want to talk about, you know, economic pressures and, you know, um, disillusionment in the United States around, you know, political disillusionment and the rise of sort of white nationalism, all of these things, you know, we have to, we have to begin to contend with them in ways that show how they're actually lived and intricate and start to weave into places that maybe we didn't expect. Um, including relationships with people who are who are not disillusioned in the same way, who are disillusioned about other things. Um, I think that's very difficult. And so the idea of repair as something that doesn't show its stitches um, is a, mm. you know, is maybe is not our goal here. And maybe it is, you know, looking at those kinds of 
you know, that thinking about an organism that has encountered, you know, a violence and to think about well, how does it absorb that violence and move through it and then become something different is I think kind of the, the state of affairs. And to think that things will be repaired and we return to the same social relationships that we had five years ago is, I think is, is folly. I don't think that there is a return in that way. I think repair is going to take a different form and I don't know what that future looks like. So when I began with, you know, how are things in Montreal? They're uncertain. I think they're uncertain really everywhere. Um, you know, there are certainly places where things are bad and will probably get worse. Um, but uncertainly, uncertainty really seems to be the, the you know, our, our really messy connective tissue between this moment and whatever moment comes next. And it's not, a, and it's like, it's not an event that, that is marked in time and that, you know, now we're, we're post COVID or right. now we're in it. It is this protracted drag through different relationships. You know, how does a family, how does a, how does a family, how does, a, how does a family remain a family of some sort in the aftermath of all of these things? How does, what does grief look like six months, one year, five years from now or anger or resentment. And I don't think those things just fade into nothing, you know, or we just wait for a new crisis to tell us, you know, or a new news cycle to tell us what we should be worried about. I think those things, they bore very deeply into social relationships. And so, you know, I hope that people spend time and care for those questions in their research. Um, I know that I, you know, I try in my own small way to do things that are meaningful in that way. But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, talking to a couple people over, you know, a decade doesn't really sound like much of a impact, but again, like what is impact here? What are we really looking at when we, when we think about the, the value of social science, for instance? So I think these are, these are tough questions. I mean, I don't, and I'm, I hope this doesn't sound, I hope we're not sort of ending on a point of nihilism because I don't, I don't mean it to sound that way. I think it's, there is this kind of, it's the risk of uncertainty. It's remaining vulnerable to some other form right. of life, other form of social relations that has yet to come and has yet to be named and you know good luck <laughs> is is that where just a bit of a coming attraction as we're closing out is that what all that was not her or all that was not her is a book that was uh focuses on one woman in baltimore from 2002 until very recently even in the after really the after she dies returning to her children and grandchildren, reconstructing a relationship about chronic illness and trying to think about, really trying to think about the, you know, the protracted nature of a loss and the complexities of, in this case, uh, young anthropologists, you know, following a middle-aged woman in Baltimore and trying to think about her life in ways that also have different political uh, implications over time, mm. and and not trying to not trying to weasel out of those, but actually trying to confront them and to recognize that they are that they 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 are the character of a relationship in an ethnography. So that's that book, which I you know, which is all which is all written in the difficult place of saying now it's over, <laughs> now now here's a final sentence, and now we're done, and. That is a very difficult task to do when you are, you know, when you are living in this, you know, you know, kind of comet, you know, trail that you just don't quite know when the last little filament's going to, um, you know, sparkle out of, out of sight. So. Uh, I cannot wait to read that. Thank you. And um, because knowing it feels more and more to me the case too, that knowing when to end a story or when to end a conversation is just to say, <laughs> that's it for now. You are the master. Scott, you're the master of this. So you know, you know how to, you know how to well, because they open up so many other, they open yeah. up so many other things and, and just a little note. I mean, I've got a project going here in South Korea where the Sewol ferry disaster memorial process is now underway. So they're, they've just decided wow. the architects to build uh, sort of impossible thing, a memorial and life safety park. So to train people in the future not to do terrible uh -huh. things that happened in the past while doing justice to the victims. And the architect, one of the architects said yesterday, just I was like, 
he said, well, this is actually also dealing with the inheritance of a, of a century of violence and disaster in Korea, period. <laughs> no small thing. And I thought, you know, at least I write a sentence and I can erase it. And I guess if it gets published, some people will read it. But you got to make a building that answers for this problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, so um, I guess that's why I didn't go into architecture. Uh, you know, it's it's there's so many people grappling with these same things is what I'm trying to say, what you've just been des- describing. And some of it are doing it with ethnography and words or art. Others are doing it in, in structures and many others in ways we have got to get out there and document, I think. Todd, um, this has been a great discussion, and I knew it would be, and I really appreciate your time today. And I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls uh, almost every weekday at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow is going to be a discussion with the great Colleen Haggerty. She's going to be um, back with uh, Sarah Miller. We're going to be talking about emergency management in the pandemic. I hope you've been following Colleen Haggerty's writing throughout the pandemic. It's been fantastic. So excited to see her and thanking my guest, Todd Myers, again for this discussion today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 6 o'clock.